Welcome to Thank the Maker. Uh, this is KCL's only creative talk show. So today uh, is our second ever episode. Thank you for bearing with us if you're just tuning in. Um, we're still figuring out some of the kinks of this radio station. It's not self-intuitive. Um, anyways, I'm your host, uh, Clay Ballard. I am a Global Media Ind- Industries MA student here at uh, King's College London, and uh, today we have a very special guest, Michaela Zamlut, and uh, we'll be talking with her in just a minute. Um, she's a postgrad student here at King's as well, studying an MA in Arts and Cultural Management, and yeah, Michaela's been working for the past five years at a little, little company, just a tiny one, um, uh, doing uh, as a publicist, um, but we'll be, we'll be talking to her more one-on-one about that in just a minute but uh yeah thank you so much for tuning in uh we'll be right back hey michaela how are you oh clay it's great to be here (laughs) monday of reading week i'm living my best life yes it is It is reading week. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Campus is dead. It's phenomenal. It's the only time I think I'm ever going to get a seat in yes. the student union. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, you, you came up here for the first time. We're on the seventh floor of Bush House Southeast. This yeah. is the first time Michaela's actually seen um, this part of Bush House. Is that right? It's true. I mean, not being one of the chosen few, it's it's hard to know what's up here. Yeah, beyond yeah. The, beyond the media suite. Totally. Yeah. Nice view. Happy yeah. to report. No, it is. Have you been up to the um, terrace uh, on the north? Oh, one? man. Now okay. you're now you're just talking about things I've never even heard of. This is what, I mean, are we at Hogwarts? What's going on? <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. But yeah, you've got a view of like the entire city okay. just on that terrace over there. All right. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I'd no recommend dead. it. I'll, I'll pop over there after this. Anyways, uh, getting back to the show, yes. um, you study arts and cultural management here. You're, I do, where, allegedly. Yeah. Where are you from? I am from California, actually. I was living in L.A. for the past couple of years, okay. uh, originally from the Bay Area. Uh-huh. Any San Francisco fans out there? Maybe <laughs> going once. Um, but yes, the uh, the weather's a bit different. Uh-huh. I'm feeling a little damp. Yeah. Um, but luckily, we got a break from the rain today. Right. Right on. Um, now, I hinted at it just a little bit earlier, but uh, where did you work for these past five years? It's you're true, one of you these. You were very secretive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're one of these postgrads that worked for a bit before coming to study. But where... thank you for making yeah. me feel old. Um... I, I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I spent the past five years working for the Walt Disney Company. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And what were you doing there? I worked in publicity for their studio, which okay. means that I was responsible for the film releases right. um, and everything that goes along with it. So okay. the film campaign basically starts a couple months after production does. We right. start getting a list of who's in the movie, who their publicist is. Okay. And based off of that, we start building a campaign that will run up through release. That's 
amazing. And now I think I misspoke earlier. You weren't a publicist necessarily yourself, but you coordinated other publicists. Is that correct? That's true. Um, the titles within publicity departments at studios really vary, although the work does not. So mm -hmm. at Disney, I was called a coordinator. Um, at another studio, at a Netflix, I may have been a manager. Right. Um, it's very fluid, but mostly what I worked with as opposed to actual talent liaison, which wasn't as often, um, I was responsible for the logistics. So anytime someone needed to show up to do something, I made sure it happened. Very cool. Now, how did you get there? What did you, what did you study in undergrad? I actually was pre-med for half of undergrad. Um, <laughs> Incredible. I, this, this <laughs> Only my, half. No, yeah. <laughs> um, I, That's crazy. It, it was. Um, I got to organic chemistry and said, you know, I don't like this, and I'm probably not going to enjoy being a doctor if yeah. I don't like this. So I switched to English. I uh, did not tell my parents until graduation. Uh -huh. um, it's fine. They're speaking to me now. <laughs> um, but following that, I uh, transitioned into PR. I actually was doing PR for wineries in the Bay Area. Wow. Okay. Um, so transitioned from very adult entertainment to very family-oriented entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I started at Disney in corporate communications, okay. actually. Um, I had a good friend at UCLA who recommended me to replace him when he moved on, uh, which kind of goes to show that the old adage, it's all about who you know, is pretty true yeah, sometimes. Totally, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. So do you did you feel like you I don't know, what what skills do you feel like you took away from your undergrad and did you use any of those in, in your early career? I, I really like that question because people who are not within the arts and especially not familiar with an English degree mm -hmm. tend to think that it's just reading books. Right. But I think that it actually translates into most of the skills that I tend to use. It's being able to look at the information you're given and construct a coherent argument yeah. and stick by it. Yeah. Even if there's nothing in the text to support what it is you're trying to say, if you can make a compelling argument that this is what something means, you're in. Right. There's no one right answer, and I think that that is a valuable skill in approaching any problems you might encounter in any aspect yeah. of your life, is knowing that you know one plus one doesn't have to equal two yeah. when you study English. Sure. It can be however you see it and however you'd like to approach it, and I think that that leads you to finding out what your personal strengths are in right. Way, the way you approach any problem. That's that's a very eloquent answer. Thank you. Yeah, no. English. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to you. Um, so what uh, at at Disney you you you're working with some big names. I understand a few. Yeah, my um, my primary uh, film segments were the Lucasfilm and Marvel releases. Wow. So yeah, you know, like... little indie projects <laughs> Just... needed all the help they could get. <laughs> Those are uh, the biggest films on the planet. That's a little crazy. Yeah, and to have even a, a hand in that at all, much less a manager role, that's really neat. Like, I, I've, I've got so many like big broad questions <laughs> related to this, but let's let's start. Um, yeah, let's start here. What I, I don't know what kind of insider look you have. Are are these franchises like planned out to a T? Or is it uh, more up in the air? Does it differ between franchise? It definitely does. Um, and I think that one of the most interesting aspects of my job was the way that Lucasfilm and Marvel would play off of each other. Because right. you 
do have the Lucasfilm acquisition that came later, and there was a lot of comparisons both from George Lucas oh, for sure. and from yeah. people at the studio who were trying to figure out, is this going to be as successful as a Pixar? You know, Are they going to be able to work with Disney in the same way that Marvel did? Um, so I think that the way that the franchise works really does come down to the people because mm-hmm. in both of these specific company segments, you've got really strong leaders yeah. who have a clear vision of what they want and they are able to build a team around them that echoes that. You know, you've got Kevin Feige who knew everything that was ever going to happen in the Marvel Universe right. 10 years before he even announced it. Yeah. The, his, you know, phase one, two, three programs are so successful because he had that strong vision mm-hmm. and he has very strong collaborators. You know, Luis Esposito and Victoria Alonso are two of the smartest people I've ever met. For people that don't know who those are. So who, sorry. Who, no, no, that's um, fine. That's probably me. true. That's the old <laughs> LA in me, just kind of assuming that everyone knows when you say Kevin, you're talking about Kevin Feige. Yeah. Um, so Kevin Feige um, is obviously the president of uh, Marvel Studios. Uh-huh. Luis Esposito is the co-president. Victoria Alonso is the EVP of production. Gotcha. And she is the really only woman to hold a title that high at a studio yeah. in the production space. And and that's that actually leads to an interesting question. I'm I'm a big Star Wars fan for those if it's a show is called Thank the Maker, a Star Wars reference in and of itself. <laughs> Wasn't gonna say anything. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> but uh one um thing that I've been observing as a Star Wars fan in that celebration at these conventions is you always have these fans and me included in that pulling out and wanting Female directors, uh, female writers, but more diversity on cast, more diversity behind the scenes. And Disney, for the most part, has been responding to that. And there's been kind of a slow uptake. And, and I know Kathleen Kennedy, her kind of response has always been, we've got to find the right person first and foremost. And, of course, this is a priority for us. Um, but, yeah, do you see that from your perspective, that kind of effort being put in? Absolutely. It's it's always top of mind in every conversation that's had, mm-hmm. um, whether it's from the production side or whether it's from the publicity side. It's bringing to light faces that you wouldn't otherwise think you'd see in a Star Wars movie or in yeah. a superhero movie because, I mean, it's proven with Captain Marvel especially and mm-hmm. with Black Panther. If people of whatever age see someone who looks like them on screen, that's going to generate a positive response. Yeah. Um, especially in a titular role, not playing the villain or the sidekick or the mom. Right. Um, and I think the point that you brought up about Kathy is true of all of Disney, really. It's important to do it because you found the right person for mm-hmm. the job and not simply because you're checking a box. Right. And I think that even then there are mixed responses. There was the whole horrible backlash against Kelly Marie Tran um, yeah. in the Star Wars universe, um, which... Kelly is easily one of my favorite people in the whole world. I cannot convey to you how excited I was when she was cast. First and foremost, um, I'm not a woman, so it doesn't reverberate as much <laughs> there. But I, I'm so excited for diversity. Mm-hmm. But she's an, she comes from an improv background. She does. Um, and I come from an improv background. And she actually went to UCLA and was there at the same time really? as I was. Yeah. Really? We That's didn't awesome. know it. Yeah, she was a communications major at UCLA. That's so, so 
freaking cool. Yeah. Did, so did you ever, I'm, did you get to meet her? Yeah. So chance? Kelly, um, this being her first big role, yeah. um, generally when that happens, depending upon the person and what they're interested in, you know, Kelly, obviously from an improv background, is incredibly outgoing and mm-hmm. warm and personable and also going to UCLA, not that I'm biased, she's incredibly smart. Yeah. So she knows what she wants. She's very confident, um, you know, in terms of sometimes doing like prep for what interviews may or may not be if you're getting questions you don't normally get some people say oh could I do a practice run through Mm -hmm. Kelly didn't need any of that but there were still aspects of this undertaking that we felt she could receive uh it would be helpful for her to get some of our experience sure. and our knowledge. No, of so she came in, um, you know, a couple more times than maybe someone who had already done a movie right. would have, just to talk <clears> through. <throat> this is what the process is going to be. Here's what we'd like you to do. Do you have any questions that we can yeah. answer? So worked with her, you know, a lot more closely, I think, than some of the more established actors. You know, like yeah. Robert Denny Jr., who's got a publicist. Right. You know, Kelly didn't yet have one when we first started working with her. So. We were trying our best to make sure it was a collaborative process all the way through, um, especially because it's Star Wars. You're not going to be able to walk down the street the same way that you could before the movie was released. Especially in in Kelly's case, uh, for those that don't know, um, The Last Jedi was received to... uh, I mean, it depends what metrics you're using, whether it's box office incredible, uh, critical incredible, or audience mixed, uh, differing... uh, Receptions, and but particularly for Kelly, she was really attacked by a lot of like right wing trolls and all these other anti diversity people. They'd probably argue it differently. I'm not going to give them the time of day. Um, she went through a lot post the Last Jedi release in terms of online harassment. Um, did you were you guys there alongside her, helping her through that from like a publicist and PR angle? We we always are not only supportive of the actors in whatever way they're looking for. You know, Mm -hmm. that's part of what we do. Our job doesn't stop when the film releases on opening day. It's all about, you know, we're also responsible for collecting reviews, disseminating how the film is done to our filmmakers and our leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whatever time the review embargo is set for, we're sitting there reading through all of the big dailies, all of the big publications. Um, So... You know, as a publicist, it's important to see it through to the end of the story, right. so to speak. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, especially because in Disney's case, I think what makes it unique is we're working with people over many years. These are actors we're going to see again. These are sometimes directors we're going to see again. It's important to keep your finger on the pulse of the franchise because mm-hmm. whatever challenges you may see, like, for example, a lot of, you know, critical backlash from The Last Jedi, that's something that Kathy's thinking about for every single project she does moving forward. So being able to provide recommendations to Kathy, to Kelly, to whomever it is that's looking for them, mm-hmm. you know, you need to be able to talk them through what, how best to put their thoughts into words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this actually leads to another question I have, which is, and we've talked about this a little bit before, um, but like audience reception and that kind of cycle of, to go into vague terms of creator to audience and then back to creator. Um, In terms of Last Jedi, which I don't want to linger on too much because for anyone that knows me, I linger on Last Jedi way too much. I love it. Um, 
is is audience reception taken into consideration moving forward in new projects? You already kind of hinted that it is, but to what degree? Because Last Jedi, at the end of the day, it's got, you know, whatever, 90-something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It is the third or fourth highest-grossing film. Why why does the audience reception matter if, if those metrics are there? Of course it matters, but I'll, I'll hand it over to you. It's, um, it's something that actually I find the most compelling about companies like Marvel or like Lucasfilm is because they have such a clear understanding of the fact that they wouldn't have the success that they do if they didn't have the fans that yeah. they do. They're such a passionate and knowledgeable fan base. I think that it's all about walking the fine line between delivering on your promise to them that you are going to make art that they're going to enjoy, but also having to understand that we are still making art. It's a very individualistic act in some ways. Right. Obviously, once you get down the line and you have you know, your producer and your AD and everyone, all of those different voices involved, you do end up with a larger sense of, you know, what this is going to be for your group, for your team. But in these franchises, I think that by picking individual directors to work on all of these different projects, you do get a much more diverse sampling of what it is to love these characters. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's, I think that's one of my favorite aspects of, of how they've taken Star Wars in the, the new era is is giving these individual names, voices, uh, in terms of Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams and uh, Taika got, Waititi, you know, John Favreau. Yeah. Benioff and Weiss going to be doing yep. something as well. It's, um, it's all about acknowledging that when you have... A franchise that's still living and breathing mm -hmm. even you know Star Wars which there was such a gap between when all of the movies you know were released mm -hmm. now we're circling back on it almost 40 years later yeah um, you know nine movies over 40 years that's some people's lifetimes right it's about knowing that everybody has a Star Wars story to tell yeah. everyone has a Marvel film to make mm -hmm. because these are people who have known these characters likely from when they were small if not being around when the first movies were released reading the comics showing it to their children mm -hmm. it's they've already made this movie in their head a thousand times yeah so yeah. you have to it's a balance between knowing that you can't replicate that for every person but maybe you can give them something that they can enjoy alongside their own personal preference yeah and again i i think that is one of the beautiful parts about the new direction of star wars in particularly and i'm sure some fans would would disagree but in in losing some sense of uniformity you get these creative projects that can be quite different from one another and it'll scratch scratch someone's itch out there not every film is going to scratch every itch um, and, and that kind of leads me to my next question is I feel like there is this tension between um, individual art creation and, you know, what people kind of purport is like story by committee and like over fan service, mm -hmm. which the story groups. Yeah. So like Star Wars and Marvel is this kind of battleground for that of like, do we want to tell new unique stories or do we want to cater to what the audience wants? Dad, do you have any insight into like how that's thought about? I mean, this is all circling just one big question about audience and creators and how we make what we make. But yeah, how does that? I mean, in the in the Marvel case, 
Kevin obviously is the biggest fan out there. Sure. He really got his start and rose up in the ranks because he offered such key notes on the X-Men franchises mm-hmm. because he knew the characters inside and out. So I think that when you're looking at audience versus creator, it's important to know that you can draw a Venn diagram and that there's overlap in how much they're passionate mm-hmm. about the franchise in particular. With these, I think it's so important to have people who love... I don't want to say brand, but it kind of is a brand, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, people who truly care about it and aren't just there because they want to work in movies. Um, that consistency level, I think, is important when it works. For Marvel, it clearly works. Yeah. Kevin, Lou, and Victoria are the dream team when they work together, and they have such a long history of working together that they've worked out this beautiful system mm-hmm. where... They, bring, they identify the type of story that they're looking to tell or somebody that they think would be a very strong match for a specific character, mm-hmm. and then they let them run with it. And they know to provide certain elements of guidance. They know how to match them up with the correct team to tell the best story that they can. Mm-hmm. I think that because the three of them have been there from day one and because a lot of the Marvel team, even on the fringes, a lot of the... Um, you know, people that they work with for scoring, people that they work with for visual effects, people they work with in production, it does tend to be fairly consistent, actually, across yeah. Marvel films. And you can you, see that, too, just in their consistency of, it's, of look. and For yeah. them, it's, it's quality versus actual aesthetics, as people still get to... You know, it's it's not a paint by numbers for mm-hmm. everybody, but they definitely provide a good framework for them to make whatever it is they're going to make. Right. With Star Wars, I think they've been a bit more experimental in where they'd like to take the stories, how they want to make them, who's going to be making them, and it's difficult, I think, for them because this is such a long and storied brand that started out with one person in creative control. You know, George Lucas had a very clear vision for what he wanted to make. And then, of course, when he handed over the reins to the absolutely brilliant Kathleen Kennedy, you Mm -hmm. know, she's she's going to have ideas and she's going to have her own vision. Mm -hmm. And part of that, of course, is carrying on this legacy of, I mean, our modern mythology, basically, is what I'd argue Star Wars is. Um... But she is going to want to make sure that she's adaptive and responsive to whatever she sees in the industry, and she brings her own creative vision to that. So they, too, have a story group, but I think that they have to deal with constant growth and change in ways that Marvel, who's always basing on pre-written comics, doesn't have to. Yeah. Fascinating. It really is, because as as much as Marvel and Star Wars are similar, they're very much not in terms of source material. It's a great point that, like, Marvel is from the heads of, you know, however hundreds of comic writers. Star Wars is from one one dinky guy. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's... One dinky guy with an awful lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Love him. I celebrate his success. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, who, who's been your favorite person to work with behind the scenes? I could not say enough about um, the lovely Dan Delu, who actually um, works on um, we call it Below the Line. Uh-huh. So basically in film credits, if you're not familiar with the term, they provide you know the main title treatment and then there's sort of a break in the credits and then that's when they start talking about visual effects, yeah. special effects. Um, so Dan has worked 
I, at Marvel. What is his name again? Uh, Dan DeLue. Dan DeLue. Um, okay. And he has worked at Marvel. God, I'm going to get this wrong. I didn't do my homework, but no, I want I want to say maybe since the first Captain America. Amazing, um, yeah. So he is such an incredibly brilliant visual storyteller. Um, and by managing all of the different visual effects houses that they work with on every single film, he basically, you know, during Avengers Endgame, there were 17 visual effects houses all over the world. And mm-hmm. so there would always be someone emailing him because as someone's going to bed, someone else is waking up. And so it's managing the specialties and the strengths of all of these different people. You know, one house uh, did the uh, the dusting effect. Mm-hmm. Um, another was responsible for the Hulk. Another was entirely responsible for... Um, you know, doing the motion capture with Josh Brolin, which they actually created an entirely new technology just to be able to make Josh Brolin Thanos. Yeah, it, um, incredible. It's this software that they invented called Medusa, uh-huh. and it basically is able to map um, with clear certainty many more points on the face so that your facial capture and the expression really comes through and doesn't go into what they call the uncanny valley, yeah. which is when you see visual effects and there's something off about it that sort of takes you out of the mm-hmm, character. Mm-hmm. I would argue that there's no moment in either of the two Avengers films where you ever say, oh, there isn't an absolutely giant purple alien being that looks and sounds like Josh Brolin. I can completely picture that he's there. Right, yeah. But he is the loveliest man. He's been cheated out of, out of an Oscar for many years yeah. um, I want to believe he's going to win it this year but that would also what what category would he be up for so visual effects visual effects yeah. correct um, but it would also be really upsetting if he finally wins the year that I'm gone because yeah. then <laughs> you've removed one element of commonality and it yeah. may have just been my work with him mm. um, but he's <laughs> he's a delight that's that's amazing um, did working in such a big corporation uh, a media corporation and arguably like the largest art creating machine out there, um, some people would probably beg, beg to differ. Did it leave you with any impressions of the creative industry coming out of it? Any, like, well, yeah, I, I don't know. Take the question whichever way you will. Um, do you feel, how do I frame this? Uh, yeah, has it left you with any impressions of the creative industry kind of on like a, a broader scale? Um, versus a smaller scale with smaller uh, groups. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I got you. Yeah, um, it inevitably will change your opinion right. of something once you know how the sausage gets made, so to speak. And I could probably go on for another couple of hours talking about all of the things that I thought were going to be different, things that met my expectations, things that exceeded my expectations, things that changed my opinion Mm -hmm. of certain aspects of making art and whether or not that was something I wanted to be a part of in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Being from a publicity side of things, I think will bring you to a point that you can't come back from because you start to understand the when something happens, you look at it completely differently. You start to understand exactly how much they do and don't get credit for. Yeah. And no, having done that and been that person and been, you know, the Kerry Washington to the president, basically, mm-hmm. handling whatever may or may not go wrong, 
and making sure the public doesn't know about it. When I watch a movie now, I have an entirely different lens through which I right. watch it. Right, so I guess that's what I was getting at is, yeah, when, when you tune into films and TV, are you able to like even enjoy it anymore? <laughs> <laughs> um, it really helps if it's no one I've ever worked with, yeah. um, which kind of narrows down the list at this point. Right. I think uh, at final count, we had 70... Four main actors in Endgame uh-huh. that I worked with, so you know it's a good number of people. No, chances yeah. are they're going to be involved <laughs> in other stuff. Um, so it it definitely did make it difficult to watch some movies if it was a particularly challenging tour schedule. Mm-hmm. I may have to wait to enjoy them in the same way, but you never lose sight of that wonder that you have. You know, I remember we had a really rough time scheduling. Um, how we were going to plan out our different stops around the world for Thor Ragnarok. And, you know, it was also our first time, you know, really working with that specific group of people in that setting. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, checking a number of boxes that we hadn't yet done. And, you know, bringing in incredibly talented people like Kate Blanchett to the Marvel franchise for the first time. You know, there were a lot of things that we wanted to make sure she was able to do an experience as mm-hmm. part of, you know, the universe, but she's Kate Blanchett. She's busy. Yeah. So um, the challenges that I faced there made it difficult to enjoy the movie as I would, having no idea what went on behind the scenes. But at the same time, being able to watch the film before it was finished and see that process of, all right, here's where they did cert- a certain effect, and this is what it looks like in this state, and here are the things that they haven't yet completed and here's why and it it brings you into the movie making process in a way that you get to be a collaborator rather than simply someone who perhaps went to hear a director speak or saw you know a an unfinished cut of a movie yeah. at the end of a DVD it makes it possible to understand that no matter how difficult a time you're having everyone's working on the same project and everyone has the same goal and that makes it all the more satisfying, I think, to finally watch the movie, you know, turn your phone off after the campaign oh, yeah. is done and actually get to enjoy something that you did. Yeah. Here's a random question I have. Do you, So at all these premieres that these directors go to, are they sitting down and watching the movie again and again and again? Or are they, like, venturing out? It's personal preference. Yeah. Um, and I know some directors who do love watching it with an audience there is nothing they enjoy more um so they will watch it multiple times other times if they're in a foreign country Mm -hmm. um they'll maybe sit in for part of the film you know the end or the beginning but we'll have them doing interviews during that time or we'll use that opportunity for them if they you know if the schedules worked out where they were able to travel with their family you know they probably haven't I don't think Anthony and Joe Russo saw their kids for like 10 years Uh, (laughs) but um, which is obviously an exaggeration but you know they're they wanted to bring their families with them when they toured for Infinity War and Endgame and a lot of the time you know it's Endgame was almost three hours long it was a chance for them to sit and have dinner with their family yeah Um, and then of course they can come back and they can speak to all the journalists and all of the fans and do what they love which is talking to the people they made the movie for Um, but yes in some cases they are just getting a chance to eat something yeah okay it (laughs) crossed my mind the other day and I was like there's no way 
you know, Ryan Johnson, who's bopping around, going to Knives Out premiere, is watching it over and over again. He but may. He may. He, he may. may. Um, and his longtime collaborator, Ron Berkman, mm-hmm. um, is likely watching it as well. Yeah. Love that guy. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I've got one more question before you, for you before we take a quick break. Um, what is a common myth about Disney? What is a common misconception um, about uh, this giant mouse house? and working there or their production cycle, or really anything? It's a really good question. Um, I think the the easiest one, and I can come up with a better answer for you, but it's no, that sure. everybody knows each other, okay. which is just so untrue if you think about the many millions of people that work for Disney all over the world. Yeah. I, my favorite thing was to say, oh, I work for Disney. I said, oh, in Burbank? Yeah. Oh, do you know... No, that's like asking, you know, oh, you went to UCLA. Did you meet yeah, you know, yeah. how many thousands of people? How many people work at Disney? It, oh God. You know, off the top of your head? I don't. No. Um, but it's, it's a small city. It, right? <laughs> um, it's more than you think because it's not just the people who work in Burbank. We have a campus in Glendale. We've yeah. got people down at the parks in Anaheim. Then we've got Disney Worlds. Then we've got the people at ABC in New York and theatrical in New York, ESPN, Bristol, Connecticut. Yeah. And that's just the U.S., then you've got people who are working, and I didn't even mention all the people who work at Disney stores all over the U.S., they're cast members as well. Then you've got our regional offices in Latin America, in Europe, we've got, you know, our main hub is here in London, actually, but you've got people in Spain, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in France, um, all of the parks, you know, it's it's a few people, so I think it's... I, I love the idea that others may believe that because it's Disney, you all work together and it's very community focused. Because in a lot of ways, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a triathlon team, we've got an improv team. You know, it's it's still a place where you can cross paths with people you might never otherwise have met. Mm-hmm. But I don't know everybody. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah, that is it's crazy how big it is. I, I saw a diagram a couple weeks ago, and you've probably seen it too. But it's like a it's Mickey Mouse's head just showing every subsidiary that is under Disney's control. And it is, it's massive. And just keeps growing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> year after year. It's true. Gosh. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Before we take a break, though, I'm going to ask you for a song recommendation, which yes. is a little tradition we have here on Thank the Maker. It's, it's a good tradition. Yeah. Um, so do you have a song that we could use for our break? I do. Um, I actually am uh, going to queue up something that's near and dear to my heart. It okay. is the theme song from Captain Marvel, which was written by uh, Pinar Toprek, and she is the first female composer to work on a Marvel film. Amazing. Let's um, give it a listen, shall we?
and welcome back to Thank the Maker. All right, so uh, we're getting into the second part of the show where we kind of toss your career aside, not really, and talk more Look, about... Look, I did. <laughs> That's why I'm here, and, right? And talk more about the uh, the creative side of things. Um, before I do get there, I do want to talk a little bit more about your career. Um, what, what, what brought you to King's? It's a fair question, and I think the question that I get asked even before, it's, oh, so you're American. Yeah. It's, you used to work at Disney and now you don't anymore? Why? Yeah. Um, and it's valid because in many places and many aspects, it was my dream job. And having done it is the only reason I say in the past tense. Um, it still is a dream mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I met the most incredible people. I worked on seven I think now of the largest box office yeah. openers of all time. That's a resume is, opener. A, a yeah. bit, yeah. <laughs> and yet I still can't get a job here. Um, <laughs> but publicity and working at a film studio is challenging if you are somebody who enjoys being very ambitious and constantly doing new and different things. You know, there are no two days that are the same as a publicist, mm-hmm. but it is very difficult to move up in the way that you might at some other companies because no one ever leaves. Everyone loves it just as much as you do. So I wanted to see if I could challenge myself in a completely different way because I felt like in some aspects, you know, you've done Avengers Endgame, what are you going to do next type of thing? (laughs) Which is not to say that I'm not incredibly disappointed that I'm missing Star Wars Episode Nine, but... I think it was time for me to do something a bit different, mm-hmm. and because I jumped around quite a bit in my major in undergrad, I never got to study abroad. So right. I thought that this might be a good way to combine both of those oh, for sure. desires, uh, because once you get your dream job, you have to come up with another dream. Yeah. You have to keep challenging yourself. It's like being creative. I think it's not just creative output. It's how do you continue to challenge yourself? In new situations. Yeah. And I guess I just wanted to see if I could get in. It had been so long since I'd done something academic. You know, I graduated from undergrad in 2011. Uh So I'd been working for quite a bit of time and I wanted to see if, you know, is it really like riding a bike? Yeah. Um, Not, you know, maybe a stationary bike, but (laughs) 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 so far it's a little wobbly. Right, right. So why arts and cultural management then? What's, what, what do you want to do with that? Uh, it's a fair question and yeah. something that's still evolving, which, you know, for anybody who got here and doesn't know what they want to do, that's okay. I'm 30 and I don't either. Um, I am fascinated by the way that you can have an entire program that studies two things that are seemingly in opposition. Yeah. Um, and it it's problem solving, really. It's being able to constantly bring together different groups of people and find the best way for them to get along and to all cross the finish line together, which yeah. in a lot of ways is exactly what publicity is. That's what I was just thinking as you said. I'm like, this is like your previous job description. But, it is, and, and, a bit. Yeah. But I would like to see where else I can take it. Working at a film studio, um, you do end up being in a smaller community. It's very insular because the people who are good are very, very good. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, everybody that I worked with at Disney, some of the smartest and easily the hardest working people I've ever met. Um, But I do enjoy the idea that I could bring some of the things that I've learned and see if they work other places, like nonprofits, for example. Right. Um, 
because I do have a lot of interest beyond the scope of just films. Mm -hmm. So what can be done in the world of literacy? What about publishing? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, bringing my English major background into it. It's all about books. Um, But being able to take the successes of the media industry and see if they work other places. Yeah, that's that's really, really cool and, and, and a nice way to think about it. Would you ever see yourself going back into a large media conglomerate? Would you ever see yourself going back to Disney? I Yeah, I you always can see yourself going back to Disney, just right. like going home, I think. Yeah. Um, it's something that was such a part of my life even before I started working at Disney, and I think you'd have a hard time finding an American who didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's if there ever came a good opportunity to do it again, I'd feel really lucky, honestly. Super. That's awesome. Now, let's get into thoughts on creativity and art in general. We're both in uh, the Department of Creative Culture... CMCI. CMCI. What the hell does that stand for? Um, <laughs> Culture, Media, and Creative Industries. There you go. We're Nailed both it. in that department. <laughs> and so we deal with these sorts of questions we're about to explore quite a bit in our courses. Um, but first and foremost, would you consider yourself a creative? It's... An, I don't know. I My knee-jerk response is usually 100% no. I can't even draw stick figures. Uh-huh. Um, but in some ways, I think you have to expand the definition of creativity a little bit. It's not just playing music, which I did poorly for a while. It's not dancing, which I did poorly for a very short time. Mm -hmm. Um, It is an appreciation that the arts are what make us human. They're what make us come alive. They're what sets us apart. Yeah. Um, And I am an avid appreciator of all of the arts. I think that the creativity I bring to it is the way that I interact with it the way that I talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not a terrible writer, I guess, if I, you know, work really hard at it. But I think being creative is coming up with creative approaches to the way that you see the world and the way that you solve problems. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. It, so, yeah, how would how would you decide, define creativity then? It is, I think it's more of an outlook. It's understanding that there are many different ways to solve a problem. There mm-hmm. are many different ways to be successful. Um, there is actually, I, I'm paraphrasing quite a bit, but I remember having a discussion with a professor of mine, an undergraduate, mm-hmm. um, because I did kind of a thesis project on fairy tales um, and mythology. And there are quite a few people who don't read fiction in general because they see it as a waste of time. And I think that fiction is the most important thing that you can read as a child, as an adult, because it teaches you to be able to entertain and hold and understand and empathize a quality of life, an outlook, just a lifestyle in general that's completely separate from your own. Right. So would you agree that before you yourself are creative or, or can create things, you have to consume what has come before? Like, do you, do, do, I guess the question is getting to how much is, how important is tradition in the arts <laughs> to reframe? I Do you need to watch movies to be a filmmaker? I'd argue that 
it's hard to find someone who hasn't consumed mm-hmm. culture some way indirectly. I don't necessarily think that it has to be the type of creativity that you are aiming to produce. I think that creativity, because it's more of an outlook, can inform anything that you do. Mm-hmm. So you have someone who maybe is making films not in Hollywood, but they're doing their own short independent student films when they're back home, let's say on the other side of the world. There are certainly things that they've done or encountered that have been creative. Maybe, and a lot of creatives as well are multi-talented. There are many different types of creativity. Um, John Favreau is a really exceptional artist. Interesting. Actually, yeah. um, which I didn't know, but he'll sometimes do like a little doodle on a piece of paper, draw a character for someone. Um, he also is a phenomenal chef and is really interested in food. He's got all of those shows on Netflix. So I think that creativity isn't simply, I am a painter, I am a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's much more about your approach. Right. And going off of that, and I feel like I know your answer, given uh, the MA you're studying, but is, creative, is creativity important in society? Is it important for the average person who's not John Favreau or Kathleen Kennedy or whoever, is it important for them? I think that the ability to spend time simply thinking about possibilities is crucial for anybody. And even if you don't think that what you're doing would be considered creative, if it gives you freedom from maybe the way that you're told to do your job from the way that things have always been. If you're able to think of something new and different, I can't think of a situation where that isn't helpful or useful or enjoyable. I love that, what you just said, the whole idea of like thinking about possibilities is all really being creative is. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, yeah, what are you doing? What are yeah, you're just sitting and going through your routine. That's you can be creative in banking You can be creative in the way that you choose to manage an organization. When people say that creativity and management are opposing ideas, in a lot of ways they are, but only because we think of them that way. We put them in those boxes, Mm -hmm. yeah. Excuse me. (laughs) That being said, um, we do put, as a society, creative industries kind of in their own box. Do you... So I know you said you wanted to go into nonprofits and and possibly nonprofits associated with creative arts. Do you, do you want to stick in portions of the market of the career market that are orbiting these creative fields? Do do you personally? Want I to do, do that? because I know for myself I have to be working on something that I'm passionate about. Yeah. Um even if it's still something where I do it from nine to five every day, I don't see that my talents are being used unless I really can think critically and engage with whatever it is that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it may be different from somebody who is an engineer where they see the project, they solve the problem, and then at the end of the day, they don't think about it again. Um, but that's not something that I think I want from the work that I do, I want it to be something that engages with every part of my life. And I want to feel as though I'm doing, I'm creating a product or, and the end goal that I'm working towards is something that I personally would want if I wasn't involved in it. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I think, I think I'm the same way as well. 
Um, I've got to, if you're not working on something you like, where, where does any of the drive come from? Right? It's just you're, you're checking off a list. Yeah. Um, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, a motivation that's different from yeah, things sure. that make you passionate. But I think that that also is kind of a defining quality of people who work in creative industries is they are willing to put things like money or financial stability or maybe elements of the creative profession that aren't always guaranteed as they are in other sectors. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a doctor, obviously you take the Hippocratic Oath. You are invested in giving humanity a better quality of life. But in a lot of ways, too, you know exactly how much money you're going to make. You know that you're going to be comfortable in certain aspects. Um, And society sees you that way as well. People are... I can't think of anybody who wouldn't want to donate money to funding AIDS research or malaria vaccines, whereas you may have a harder time convincing someone, hey, I want to make a movie about this comic book. Yeah. It doesn't have the same definitive effect. You know, you give someone a vaccination and they're now protected from whatever disease you vaccinated them for. You set someone down to watch a movie they're probably happier, but the impact is going to be different. Yeah. One plus one doesn't always equal two. Yeah. Everybody's going to take away something different, and it could be the thing that changes their life. It might also just be something that let them escape from their problems for two hours. Yeah. That's 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 really interesting to think about, and 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 what drives people, what what yeah, I'm try- a lot of great points there. No, because um, like I was, I was I'm thinking about the doctors I know, and a lot of people that say they did it, you know, say they did it because they wanted to help people, but, like, you're, you're completely right. At the end of the day, a lot of them, they know, they know what kind of money they're going to be right. making. Right. They there's, invested there's... in eight years of school knowing that at the end of it, this is exactly right. where they would be. You could invest eight years into a movie franchise and then have to sell it. It's a total gamble. Yeah. 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 And, and passion being the main driver there, I think, is a really distinctive feature of of the creative arts fields. Yeah. No, very interesting. I'm not sure how we got there, but that is a very interesting takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that pop culture, so films and media that's, that's really driven by popular consumption and ultimately money as well is just as valuable as like what people would dub as high culture or, you know, arts found in museums? Yeah. It, I have a really hard time arguing with, people making art um even if it's not my personal preference even if i don't understand it i don't think it is fair for the few to decide what's good for the many because everyone responds to different things everyone needs different things i like different things now than i did when i was 10 when -hmm. i was five i'll probably like different things again when i'm 60 although you could probably argue a lot of the things i like now are what 60-year-olds like. <laughs> Very into classical music. Does, um, does the art, though, matter? Or or the, the... What am I trying to say? Does it matter when it's driven by money as opposed to yeah, something else? Yeah, I think else? that you definitely end up with different types of art mm-hmm. product. Um, it's that idea of instrumentalization that we were talking about is how do you justify whether art is good? It's kind of difficult in our society, in our culture, not to decide that based on money. Yeah, market value. Yeah, and I think that a really good argument is 
there's now an entire genre, you know, young adult fiction that didn't exist in the same way before Harry Potter. Mm. And that arguably was just another book. And yet, because it became popular, you now have films, you have theme parks, but more importantly, you have this entire other world of people who are simply trying to capture terrible way to put it but that same magic yeah no yeah and it's also inspired generations of people to read to know that there's something there for them so i think that seeing something as making money isn't necessarily bad from the creative perspective obviously from an economic standpoint that's the goal that's the dream is to be able to make money making art but an artist shouldn't see a product as lesser simply because it's successful. Maybe it motivates certain decisions that you wouldn't necessarily have made mm-hmm. if you were simply worried about the integrity of the art. Yeah. But no, I think you, I think you make a great point about the exposure side of it. That like, how do people even know what art is if not for going to see the movies? If not for you know reading a comic book? A lot of times, especially we're both Americans. In America, if you go to Idaho, I'm probably going to offend some Idahoans, but I don't. There's probably no art museums in the middle of Idaho. What, like, what? I'm sure there are, but you, you get my point. I mean, there uh, aren't art museums once you get out of London. Yeah, a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. It's it's. I think unfair to say that certain art is what counts as art when not even everyone, just as a baseline, has exposure to that. Yeah, I don't know a lot of people who live down in Brighton who are going to come into London every weekend to see the opera. Right. However, they might be reading. They There might be small galleries there, you know, that someone has opened, you know, their personal artwork. They are probably listening to music. Mm-hmm. Maybe they tune into podcasts and talk shows. They're, yeah. You know, it's, it's really what makes sense for you yeah. in the arts. Fascinating. Um, and this, this has me thinking about kind of a broader point about where the economy is going. Bear with me. Um, so I read this article for one of my classes uh, where we talked about kind of the um, direction of the economy. You start in agrarian society, you move to industrial, now we're supposedly in service, service economy. I read this article that proposed that we're moving into an experience economy. And, and when I look at that, I don't really necessarily take experience as, as anything but art that being kind of the end goal of what you're you want to experience on a day-to-day thing as a person now of course there's like vacations and all that but really the way these things are built and put together there's artistic value to all of it do you agree do you think that we are moving to a society where less and less we're worrying about our basic needs and making money and more about more worrying about what we're how we're spending our time essentially and i'm kind of setting the answer up for it being yes but what are your, what are your thoughts on this um that came up in one of our readings as well yeah. it just goes to show cmci yeah. it's all one family um and you know again we go back to disney as being possibly the best and original propagators of the experience economy in mm-hmm. their parks especially oh for sure um you know they do it better than anyone else and i'm not even biased about that it yeah. just is Um, I think that the idea of an experience economy also has to be taken with a grain of salt because that also implies that we're talking a high culture, low culture distinction here. 
especially in terms of the people that are consuming the experiences. Right. I think that an experience economy is it's filling this higher need on the pyramid simply because we've exhausted everything else. Mm-hmm. And we're always looking for the new, the next, the better. Um, social media, I think, definitely plays into the experience That's, economy. Yeah, fascinating point um, of view, yeah. You know, if it isn't on Instagram, did it happen? Did you enjoy it? And also, even when it looks like you did, did you really? Um, so I think that people are trying to come up with a new language in this age of technology of describing the way that they feel and a new language for talking about art. Um, It's actually part of, weirdly, what I wrote about to get into Mm -hmm. Kings was there is now, the arts truly have to be concerned about the way that their art is experienced almost more than what the art is in some cases. And this echo chamber of the internet, of blogs, of chat rooms, whatever, that now is sort of making its own meaning completely separate to what the art was intended for. Sure. Um, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Uh, we're, we're reaching the end of our show. Um, I did want to ask, uh, do you have any uh, recommendations uh, to, to end the show with for anybody that's listening? So many. Um, I know that anyone in the CMCIMA especially um, is kind of over-reading at the moment, so <laughs> I'll go ahead and recommend a show, okay. um, The Magicians, yeah. which is actually based on a book series by Lev Grossman, who also sometimes writes for The New Yorker. Um, and this is easily the best book-to-show adaptation yeah. I've ever seen. They've done such a beautiful job of handling all of the characters and interpreting them for the screen the casting is wonderful it's hilarious it's a little geeky and you know it's it's basically harry potter with sex drugs and rock and roll amazing so what's (laughs) that called again the magicians all right amazing check that out thank you so much for coming on the show again today we really appreciate it Uh, thanks for bearing with the technical issues of the beginning all good um but yeah that's uh thank the makers so thank you so much for tuning in uh let's uh close it on out